I think the flagship number for U.S. equities is uh, a crypto or options trade 35x spot. Um, I mean, we have to remember that traditional equities launched in like the late 70s. So we've we've had about uh, 50 years uh, to get to that that growth level or to that multiple. I think that's something that crypto or DeFi specifically can do in, in less than 10 years. Belker, baby. What's up? Belker. Welcome back. We're back at five. All right. <laughs> we- Who are we talking to today? <laughs> I feel like you're setting me up for like a Tushar like intro where I like royally with a Tushar. Anyways, we're talking. You know, I, ta- to, I talked to uh, I was talking to Julie in the office today about the episode. She's like, I listened. Oh to the no, podcast. she messaged she's like, me. When Jason goes Tushar, baby, <laughs> Tushar. Uh, Julie messaged me. She's like, she's like, are you having a baby, a child? I was like, uh, no. What? She's like, oh, I was listening to Belker. She's like, Mike was making jokes about your impending baby, and I was like, oh my god. Well, I just made my day that Julie listens to Belker. I know. Me that, too. Uh, me too. Just Trader Julie. Day Trader, Day Trader Julie. Julie. Add it again. Yeah. So, uh, okay. no, we've got two really uh, really interesting guests for this episode talking about options, um, right? Like mm. fixed rates. Like, I think the reason we wanted to do this episode is the, uh, we've been talking a lot about fixed rates, like the 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Like when you go out and get that on the, you go out to your bank or something and you get that, like that, the 30, the 30 year mortgage is not a beast that exists in nature that is created with like uh, there are variable rates and then folks use options to lock those rates in. And so we wanted to do an entire uh, episode just on like decentralized options and decentralized derivatives. We brought on Tristan, uh, who's running Zeta Markets, which is on-chain derivatives and options. And uh, and then Udav, uh, who's one of the co-founders of uh, Friction. So uh, building these like different yield strategies and, and options vaults basically uh, built on Solana. So. Exactly. Yeah. So, and we, we kind of got into exactly, you know, it took us, I think about, we, we really started the interview talking about just the current state of the market for decentralized derivatives. And then we kind of connected it with our overall thesis. And uh, Don, he, he really, he got there without us even prompting or anything. So um, really great episode. We cover a lot of super interesting ground. Hope you enjoy, guys. Enjoy. See you on the other side. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. This is episode, what is this, Mike? I think five? Episode five? This know. is all about, uh, do you, I don't so even bad. know. Freaking season one and I'm already losing the episode. So we got, uh, this episode's all about uh, decentralized options, decentralized derivatives. Uh, again, one of the ideas of this of this season is that uh, fixed rate, uh, like one of the big unlocks that comes from the ability uh, to borrow and lend fixed rates is could kick off this next bull market. Uh, fixed, rate, uh, fixed rates are not actually something that exists in traditional markets. Um, you really have these like variable rates in TradFi and then you use options uh, and derivatives to lock those in. So today we have uh, Udav, uh, the co-founder of Friction Labs. We have Tristan, who's building Zeta Markets, uh, on-chain derivatives and options. So Tristan, Udav, uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us on. Maybe we could just kind of start uh, from a high level in general. Um, I think when you're talking about something like decentralized options or derivatives, you almost can't get too high level. So you kind of just walk us through like architecturally, how is like an on-chain derivative kind of built? How is it different from maybe like its CFI equivalent? And then kind of talk about the state of DeFi derivatives today. Like how large is the market? What do you kind of expect it to be? Yeah, I can kind of uh, jump in and give some thoughts. I I mean, we've tried to model a bunch of our stuff of how it's done traditionally. Uh, in, uh, I guess, the traditional finance industry. So we've gone initially with our first product around the kind of order book style model. Uh, and we also offer under collateralized trading, which we think is like a, a big unlock for um, a bunch of these DeFi platforms. I think historically you've seen fully collateralized, over collateralized platforms, uh, and that's kind of stifled, uh, I think, 
uh, DeFi historically um, with a lot of these platforms. And so I think that was a pretty big innovation there, uh, enabling a lot more capital efficiency. Um, and then, yeah, what was the second part of the question? Sorry. Just walk us through like the state of the market today. Like what sort of different derivatives kind of exist? What's the market size? Yeah, good question. So I think uh, DeFi as a whole still 50 billion TVL roughly. Last I checked, maybe that was a while ago. Things have probably gone down since. Um, but from, I think, the split of market share, I think 10% was roughly DYDX, um, which is like the majority of perp stuff. Uh, that was before I think GMX became pretty big, which was more recently. Um, so I'm not sure what the exact split is now. Uh, but it usually sits around that, like no more than 20% of market share is down to derivatives. Um, and that's in pretty stark contrast to, I think, what you see in CFI and traditional finance in CFI. I think the numbers last I checked in this jump report were 57% of all traded volume on uh, CFI crypto is derivatives. And that's obviously very much driven by the demand for, for perps uh, on a lot of these really uh, liquid perps exchanges, FTX, Binance and the like. Um, and then traditional finance, I think it's more like 95% is really down to derivatives trading, futures and options just being you know the bread of bread and butter of the industry there. So um, that's pretty interesting. In terms of yeah, the the DeFi stuff, I would say uh, most of the market, yeah, as I mentioned, is is still kind of spot trading, lending, stuff like that, like pretty simple primitives. We're seeing more in terms of the derivative side coming up. There are some good players in the in the kind of uh, decentralized uh, what do you call it uh, perps trading space. So few on Solana, uh, a few kind of on Ethereum as well, DYDX, GMX, like I mentioned, Mango on Solana. Uh, and then we're seeing, I guess, the early signs of some of the option stuff uh, coming to light. So, you know, obviously what we're building, what what the friction guys are building as well on the kind of vault side as well. Um, but it still feels like uh, pretty early days on that side. Hmm. Who are the who are you guys seeing as the primary users of these products, right? Like who actually wants exposure to the options and derivatives markets today? Yeah, this is an interesting question because there's probably five or six buckets of users. Um, if we, if we go all the way from kind of degen crypto DeFi native to institutional wealth manager, family office, everywhere in between, the appetite obviously comes largely from the, the left side of the spectrum. Um, but I think a big, big part of people seeking real yield is kind of the meme for this cycle, uh, which actually is, is quite true in some sense, since most of the, the returns coming from uh, the futures and options and perp space is, is actually just from the inherent risk property of an asset, whether that's the implied vol of the asset or whether it's the funding rate or whether it's an arbitrage between uh, the funding rate and a spot market. And I think those are the people who are looking for um, more sophisticated forms of yield, but also understand a bit of the risk. I think as we see kind of normie DeFi education increase, it's quite important to make sure people understand that like there are different risks you're taking with us versus farming in a UniV3 LP um, or UniV2. Um, I think traditionally the market has been really DeFi native. Uh, something that we're working on a lot with Friction Institutional is kind of bringing in this wave of family offices, high net worth um, customers and institutions who are more like custodian heavy. So let's say you're a, a normal family office in TradFi, you want to onboard into DeFi, you need a custodian to help you on ramp. Uh, partnering with custodians like Fireblocks, Copper, Anchorage make life a lot easier for these guys to get in. Um, to the to the ecosystem, and then they end up knowing the fundamental principles of kind of finance or the, the products that they trade in their markets, and they can carry them over into DeFi. They just obviously need to understand how the rails are a little bit different than when they're they're used to in the traditional world. 
How would you outline? I mean, uh, I don't know if you guys follow uh, Z Prime at all, but they wrote uh, a great blog post a little while ago on just the state of decentralized derivatives. Um, and there was, you know, something that really stood out interest. And I know you did a podcast recently with Delphi where you kind of talked about this, but just like the op, like right now, the market for CFI options, while small, like notionally compared to TradFi and everything, it largely dwarfs, right? It's like, a, a, I think it's like several orders of magnitude larger, right, than the, op- than the market size for DeFi uh, derivatives. Like, what? Do, why is there such a difference in market size there? And then how do we get, like, what do you ultimately see as the as the TAM kind of being for decentralized options? Let's just say decentralized derivatives, but we can mostly refer to options here. Yep, yep. Um, so I think it's just, uh, the majority is down to, I think it being a really hard problem to solve. And then probably the second bit is also... Um, where the majority of users are in terms of their experience with on-chain trading. Uh, so on the first kind of point, this is really what I think spurred us to, to start Zeta. We saw a lot of the platforms that were out there maybe a year and a half ago, um, and I don't think they were super satisfactory in the product that they were offering. So I won't name any names, but you know, a bunch of these Ethereum protocols, um, they were trying to do on-chain options trading. It would be to put on a call spread, you'd have to pay like $200 in gas fees, say. Um, and it was just really expensive. Uh, you know, there were just like massive, um, you know, massive spreads on their order books, no liquidity. It was just like completely unusable. Um, and, and so we saw that as a big opportunity to kind of step in there and, and start providing those products. The thing that kind of enabled that for us was building on Solana, given that, you know, it had higher TPS guarantees, it had order book primitives and all these other kind of core building blocks that we needed. Um, and so that's allowed us to actually I think the first people to build out, you know, an actual viable uh, on-chain options exchange. And currently we are on on our kind of altcoin stuff like uh, Solana options markets. We're actually doing uh, more liquidity, uh, more size uh, than Deribit, which is pretty cool, as well as like tighter markets, which I think is is pretty impressive. Uh, still don't quite compete on the on the BTC and ETH side. We only just launched that like a couple of weeks ago, um, but obviously going to be working towards that. Um, but the simply the fact that we can process uh, a bunch of this stuff uh, sub-second so we can do Oracle updates really quickly. Uh, I remember with, I think, Hedgic back in the day, um, they would basically manually uh, plug in the IV values once a week, uh, which I don't think is super satisfactory given that options move very quickly intraday. Um, so it was pretty funny. And so ours obviously use Pith under the hood, very quick price updates. We can update all our mark prices and kind of liquidate, I think, very efficiently. And given the non-linearity of options, I think that's that's super important. Uh, and then the second bit on, I think, where the DeFi user base is at. So Udav kind of uh, alluded to this already, but I think the majority of it is is retail kind of focused at the moment. And most people are in that bucket of yield farming, yield generation. Uh, so people can't kind of quite, haven't quite got their heads around, I guess, you know, options trading, stuff like that. Even, even perps, I think people, uh, you know, they, they can kind of grasp that. Uh, but then options, you know, you have theta decay and, you know, time aspect of all that, uh, it just becomes a lot more complicated. Um, so, you know, hopefully over time we, we get there, but I think it's going to require some simple simplifications in the UX and what we're kind of hoping for as well as this gets integrated as the back end for a bunch of services. And hopefully eventually at the end of the end of the day, people are doing impermanent loss hedging and they don't even know they're using options. I've got a, I've got like two, maybe different lines of a question I'd love to get your guys' opinion on, which is one, just like what's the proper like ecos like both of you guys are building on 
Solana, I know, but like recently there was the announcement like Say, which is a, you know, central limit order book, uh, to, which is its own DAP chain that's leveraging the Cosmos SDK. So I'd love to get your thoughts on just like general purpose blockchains supporting DeFi protocols for maybe like versus app chain specific. And then um, Tristan, you just kind of mentioned perps, which has been the dominant structure for derivatives in crypto thus far. So uh, I'd love to just get your thoughts ultimately on instruments, but maybe we can start with different ecosystems, right? Like Solana, I think in terms of was kind of leaps and bounds uh, quicker than Ethereum, certainly uh, like a year ago, like much faster, much cheaper, all that kind of stuff. Recently, uh, you know, Cosmos has attracted DYDX, right? And then say it's its own, it's almost like a mix of a app chain versus a general purpose blockchain. It's like a general purpose blockchain with some stuff built in, right? That's supposed to be, it's a central net order book, uh, almost purpose blockchain. Um, so I'd love to get your thoughts on just like how, where you guys see DeFi building out. Is it going to be mostly on Solana, Cosmos, ETH L2, like some mix of all three? Like what makes for a fertile environment, I suppose, for uh, DeFi? Yeah, I can jump in on the on the chain stuff because, yeah, we, we are built on Solana primarily now, but we, we've actually been working with the Say guys for quite a while. Uh, I've been talking mm. to them for quite a bit when uh, they were kind of building out the early designs for their protocol. And so we're actually launching very imminently on Say as well. They were helping us kind of build out our protocol over there as well. And I'm pretty big fan of their team. I think they're, they're great. I actually just met up with them in a Stanford blockchain week over in SF. So, you know, it was good to kind of touch nice. base and see how things are going there and definitely like pretty excited for what they're building out. I think the fact that they can get the finality and, and block times down, you know, pretty low makes for a pretty compelling case for kind of order book based blockchains. And what I really like about app chains, I guess, is that you can tune the parameters of it. And so if we're trying to build something that's very specific to high frequency derivatives, that seems like a great way to go. Um, the only thing you kind of forfeit, I guess, is somewhat of a level of composability, which I think is, is probably what is somewhat holding back Cosmos in the long term is you have to kind of bridge assets to everything. That's what Solana being this kind of uh, monolithic chain, I think uh, probably does a little bit better on uh, in terms of composability. You have all the primitives on the one layer. Uh, it's very easy for us to compose with any other kind of financial primitive without having to worry about any kind of inter-blockchain communication. Um, but I guess there's, there's trade-offs everywhere there. The, the kind of trade-off that's been happening for Solana that you know I'm sure everyone as a DeFi founder can uh, share my pain with is uh, NFTs kind of clogging up the chain, uh, bringing the chain down and, and having all kind of, kinds of problems. And I know there's been some talks of like, hey, can we build a Solana L2 or a fork of Solana and just ban NFTs uh, and just keep it DeFi only? Um, so that's pretty funny. Yeah, I think the question is interesting because the answer is honestly just how how do you price a market fairly and why would anyone ever want to price a tighter spread on chain than off chain? Doesn't matter where it is. Um, I think the idea that we get like continuous liquidity for these complicated products on chain at tighter spreads and off chain is just fundamentally um, broken right now in DeFi. I don't think it makes sense for a maker who comes into a DeFi world to price anything tighter on chain because A, they need to hedge this. Uh, if they're hedging it with a different product, then they're probably doing that off-chain as well. If they're hedging it with the same product, let's say you're hedging a sole option with a sole option somewhere else, um, both venue and any venue really for Solana options right now is pretty tough continuous liquidity-wise. I think when you think about it like a blockchain versus blockchain, um, the makers are going to ask themselves the same question. Like, how did Serum get bootstrapped? Well, there was, there was five people who got in a room and said, okay, we're going to quote really tight on Serum spot markets. And then Serum's going to open up to allow anyone to build perps like Mango. Uh, which provides some unique benefits that don't exist on other places like DYDX, right? You can 
cross margin against any asset on Mango, while, which is a, a leading purpose tax on Solana, while on DYDX, you can only USDC margin. And I'm sure this will change with DYDX chain. But I think a lot of these things have been thought about when initially kind of Serum was rolled out um, in terms of kind of being competitive versus other just app chains. Um, but yeah, generally, I think being being aware of how a maker is going to price something is, is probably the, the thing that most DeFi protocols don't do. Is like, is, is there a reason for a maker to want to price this product really tight? Um, and if so, is this is this type of liquidity providing actually the best source? I mean, generally, we, we think that um, RFQs or request for quote models um, are pretty superior form of pricing for um, large size um, nonlinear products like auctions because you get everyone in the same place for a short period of time. This is the same way the treasuries auction and large commodity windows like the Platts auction work in TradFi. Um, and we've seen you, you need to aggregate players in the same same time, uh, same window in order to get large size done. But it's just a cool take. I think some blockchains or some app chains will be built with this idea too. Um, but I think Say is building some exciting stuff. Exciting to see uh, that whole world develop. What What is the incentive? I, I I think maybe I'm not understanding something fully. Like, what is the incentive then for market makers to quote incredible, like, to get these incredibly tight spreads in DeFi? Like, what what will drive that? If you're saying that that that's that there is no incentive today, like, what what will change that? Oh, guess guess what the incentive has been historically? It's been it's been token emissions, right? Like, look at DYD, look at DYDX, look at Deribit, right? Deribit gives equity. Paradigm gives equity. These are all the largest traders of derivatives in the off, in the CFI world. And even even on chain protocols have to give token or some form of compensation because otherwise the maker has no real reason to take on unnecessary risk, right? And and this is I think one of the things that turned a lot of market makers into VCs early on in crypto is like, oh shoot, well now we suddenly have these giant bags of early stage protocol tokens. What are we going to do with them? Well, let's try to get an agreement with them to trade their token against the perp. So. It opens up this weird flywheel um, that I, I personally think is is a little bit confusing and, and really tough to price these incentives. I mean, yeah, I look at all the work done on DYDX incentives and um, a lot of lot of stuff going on there that I think the industry has learned from. Hmm. Do you guys have a thought on uh, you know because Say is really leaning to the central limit order book model? Uh, do you guys have a, like what's the correct model to provide? Liquid, right? We've got AMMs, which is super novel uh, invention of crypto, I think, overall. There are obviously some problems with that. How do you guys kind of weigh the benefits of a central limit order book versus an AMM model? And then how do you see that kind of breaking out into the future volumes-wise? Yeah, I think we kind of tossed up both in the early days. We actually wanted to build a hybrid model, and maybe maybe we will build that initially. I think they kind of solve almost two different problems. So I think AMMs are fantastic for this innovation of liquidity bootstrapping, so getting yourselves zero to one. Um, but I think then they kind of getting one to N and getting uh, really deep liquidity, um, that is where they struggle a bit. They always tend to be a price lagger and you tend to always get kind of adverse selection and, and picked off uh, as the liquidity provider there. Um, maybe that's like a bunch better in Uni V3, but I need to kind of obviously look into that uh, a bit more deeply. Um, but with order books, I guess, then you're, you're, that's basically the gold standard for what people use in traditional finance. That's where you get the best price discovery. But the problem is someone needs to be an active liquidity provider. That's obviously been probably the single biggest challenge that we've had to work with is, uh, 
paying up for market makers and getting them integrated and getting them to pretty much like 99% uptime on our exchange on DeFi, uh, which is really hard, especially because I think DeFi is not super favorable to makers as kind of Udav uh, alluded to. Uh, it's very easy for them to get picked off if the chain performance uh, kind of starts to drop. You know, they get all these orders that are left open on the order book. Uh, people kind of snipe those and they lose a bunch of money. So it's really not favorable for them. It's really suited for the taker. Um, so I think those are the kind of two models there. We wanted to build something eventually, hopefully that, that kind of hybridizes the two where you can use an AMM, I guess, to, to kind of bring that initial liquidity and then kind of uh, have that run through the order book. I think protocols like Radium tried to do that with, with Serum uh, to kind of, uh, I'm not sure like how effective that was. Uh, and then I guess the last primitive um, that was also mentioned were RFQs, um, which I think also give uh, pretty good pricing. And, and we've seen some good examples of that out there as well. I think AMMs um, have, have evolved a ton since uh, the OG balancer Uniswap launch. Um, I mean, all they are really is is a way for passive liquidity providers to try and generate market maker PL. And I think quickly it was figured out that passive liquidity providing in the long term is not plus EV. Um, I think it was pretty challenging for people to figure that out because the incentives were what were driving participation in some of these pools. I do think that. Tweaking the constant product market making model, uh, for example, the stable swap invariant that Curve used is, is unquestionably very powerful, right? Like look at the volumes going on Curve still today. Um, it's, it's quite useful for stable, stable, stable pairs. Uh, and I think it's, it's really a, that's probably what's most exciting to me in, in kind of the historical AMM world. I mean, if you look at UniV3, um, it's an AMM, but really it's an order book, right? Range orders just look like showing orders on multiple levels. And I think we've seen, um, to for AMMs to scale, they have to adopt some properties of order books, um, such as allowing active LPs um, more flexibility and concentration. I mean, these are these are terms that you just talk to a normal market maker, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I put it a I put in a limit bid or a limit offer at some level." Uh, it's it's replicable with a Univ3 position, and I think people naturally realize that. Um, would definitely contend that the the newest um, participant in in this world is is RFQs uh, or or just auctions as a system. Uh, actually, there's a really interesting article that was published by the Paradigm Research guys about gradual Dutch auctions, which is the auction style that we use at Friction. Um, we think that's a really effective way of, of pricing things uh, that are very illiquid in the first place. Uh, auctions are one example. Um, I mean, you can see things like pseudoswap. Uh, there's a lot of people that are going to start using this because I think assets that are tough for an individual to price continuously uh, become a lot easier when you only have to price it three times a week, five times a week, or on demand when a bunch of takers show up. This also helps make flow a lot less toxic um, and, and help some of the adverse section problems that, that Tristan was talking about earlier with Ambound. So, yeah, excited to see that develop more. I mean, cool things like Cashflow out there working on it. Um, One Inch has an RFQ API, I believe, too. So, Yeah, we're also seeing other pretty cool models where people are building automated trading strategies, which are basically like an AMM. Um, so there's a team that integrated with us called uh, Selfy, and they basically run grid trading strategies. Um, this is really nice because I think retail is obviously probably not at a sophistication level where they can, you know, become an options market maker. That's obviously pretty hard or even, you know, like a futures or perps market maker. It's pretty difficult, but they have a nice model. You basically chuck money into a, into a vault, essentially. They, they take that capital and then they run this order, like simple automated trading strategy that provides uh, liquidity to, to order books. And I think... Uh, last time I checked with them, they were doing 80% of the kind of order flow on mango markets. And I think they were doing 70% of our futures, which is pretty impressive, I would say. Um, so looking forward to that kind of, uh, becoming more of a, um, a thing that we see in DeFi these days. 
Can you um can you talk a little bit? I mean, one of the one of the challenges about creating on-chain markets for options is just the fragmentation of liquidity across different experts. So that's one of the reasons why the PERP has just been so dominant in its model. It's just the liquidity concentration. You can kind of walk through how you think about PERP versus options. And like again, just because you know, some of the multi-coin there I've read this. Some of the stuff Multicoin puts out are very, very bullish on the future of the perp. Uh, maybe some others, not so much. So I'd love to just get your your thoughts on that whole dynamic. Yeah, I can share a bit on. Um, so, I mean, the biggest difference, as you mentioned, is just like the the expiratory nature of the option and the idea of to select like a, a discrete strike. And then I'll get to this concept or this product called a power perpetual, mm-hmm. which I think is like one of the most innovative things DeFi has seen in the last um, year, year and a half, which really combines the convexity of an option with a uh, lack of strike and expiry of a perpetual, which, um, yeah, it's, it's a product that we spent a bunch of time thinking about and built out on Solana. And we think it, it is very young and it's very tough to, to say how exciting it can get. Um, but yeah, just a high overview. I mean, curbs have, um, the power because they allow someone to basically speculate on the price, the difference between the price of an asset, um, through a, a index. And then, uh, that, that comes from, let's say, an aggregate of spot prices on a centralized exchange and a mark price, which comes from an order book. And I think it makes it very easy for a ton of liquidity to flow in. Like if you look at DYDX, still chugging along trading like half a billion to a billion of volume a day in perps. And they, they, I think for many reasons, didn't want to launch options. I think it was a very early design, design decision on their part to say, we're not going to the option space um, because they realized that this fragmentation um, is, is like, it's kind of ridiculous. Even if you compare it to Deribit, who has like two and a half options listed, really two and a half products listed for options. Um, and just for makers who come in, uh, they, they want to see a minimum amount of size. So you have the cold bootstrap problem like you do with any exchange, right? And uh, if if these places aren't going to incentivize uh, liquidity providing and like, prove that there's not going to be adverse selection for the maker, then it's going to be tough to, to bootstrap much in, in the options world, which is why the funding rate is such a powerful innovation, right? Like it allows the, the price of the perp to converge to the price of the underlying asset. And now now to, into the, the part about um, power perpetuals, like, the idea of a power perp essentially says that instead of tracking an index of the spot price, you're tracking the index of the spot price squared, let's say, right? And that gives you a really cool property um, that you normally don't see in, in any option or in any perp, right? It combines the two essentially. So think of a normal perp as giving you returns that can be modeled by like one plus R. The power perp gives you returns that are modeled by one plus R squared. Um, so that has this really cool R squared term to it, which gets you what options provide, which is convexity. Um, and then you can hedge your 2R, which is your delta, which is a normal perp. So you essentially create a, a straddle position with the power perp. And now your challenge is how do you bootstrap liquidity for that power perp? Because everyone looking at this instrument is like, how do I price this thing? And then once they understand how to price it, they're like, oh, okay, it makes sense. Uh, now, why should I price this? Like, where's the edge I can get if you're only trading a couple million bucks a, a week on the, on the product? Um, yeah, I think that's something that really gets me stoked about options and DeFi generally is like we can create things like this that don't exist anywhere else. I mean, we don't have perps, much less power perps. And these power perps are a very great strategy for um, like harv- uh, harvesting yield, volatility yield, because if you're short this power perp uh, and your delta edge, you're basically collecting what we view as like the, the, the volatility premium for that time in which you're selling this. Because the funding rate for a power perp is always positive, as kind of alluded to earlier with that, that R squared term. Um, but yeah, really, really cool innovation that combines perps and options that we, uh, we see in crypto today. Yeah, I think that was an awesome breakdown. The the kind of yeah, the the main three ways that I, I see options used these days. Yeah, it's obviously uh, leveraged speculation. I think that's why it's so popular on Robinhood and kind of in traditional finance. That's why 
people love to buy the Tesla calls because that's like the, the easiest way to get leverage, I think, in the traditional space. Uh, less so in the uh, crypto space, I think, because perps have really nailed that niche of high leverage trading. Um, the second one that I think is like the, the primary use case in institutional is obviously hedging. Uh, I think that's that's really important and, and that's what options are, are great for. Obviously, if you want to buy puts on your you know portfolio that you might have, it's basically buying uh, fixed price insurance, which is, which is very powerful. But I think as of yet with uh, kind of uh, where most of DeFi is at with these kind of... Uh, you know, ape traders going 100x leverage on a bunch of their positions. People really want to go full risk on, uh, don't actually care about hedging too much yet. Um, and then the last bit is this yield generation stuff, um, which I think the vaults market has, has catered to pretty well. Um, you see uh, yield typically coming from a lot of these uh, quote unquote kind of Ponzi products. So a lot of these like own forks and stuff like that, advertising, you know, a million percent APY. People go in there, 99% chance they get rugged. Um, uh, you know, there's obviously some, some better alternatives to that that are a bit safer. Um, but at the end of the day, I think for the most part, people are kind of just printing tokens and giving away free money to people. Uh, and when it comes down to options, I think that is where you've seen in traditional uh, a bunch of these structured products and, you know, like private wealth uh, kind of products. That, that's where people actually generate their yield is by selling options and kind of scooping up the premiums there. Um, so, so that's kind of what we've seen. Tristan, you mentioned at the beginning of, the, of this episode that your guys' volumes on some of the long tail of assets uh, exceeded the volume on Deribit. What's it going to take for, which is just remarkable, by the way, congrats on that. Um, yeah, that's really impressive. What, what's it going to take or like will will your volume on Bitcoin and ETH ever exceed Deribit? Obviously, I'm assuming you say yes. So like maybe the better question is what what's it going to take and like how when do you see that happening? Uh, yeah, good question. So I, I think it's definitely uh, going to be tough. That's obviously what we're striving for. I think really where we will find our niche is is that that altcoin stuff. I think that's where Uniswap obviously differentiated versus like why would I buy my tokens on FTX and Binance versus Uniswap? It's because you can kind of list those markets very quickly, um, and I, I think it caters to the the kind of long tail of of assets. Uh, and I think given that Deribit took a year to push out their Solana markets, uh, I think we can definitely spin out new markets a lot quicker. So for example, this ETH merge was coming up. Uh, we pretty much only had Solana options. We were able to spin up ETH within basically a week. And now that we've done all that infrastructure, uh, I think new markets can come up in a day. Um, in order to get us to more liquidity, I think it's basically doing what DYDX has done. Um, so I think given that we are a DeFi platform, the interesting bit that probably centralized players and traditional players can't do is do stuff with the token. I think that's pretty powerful. And that's obviously kind of the, the kicker for a lot of these DeFi protocols. So running sort of a market maker program, uh, as well as incentivizing a bunch of kind of uh, taker liquidity, I think will be really important. Um, we've seen that work really well for, for DYDX. I think they went from 40 million volume uh, before they launched their token to about 4 billion overtaking Coinbase and a bunch of the other major exchanges, which is pretty mind-blowing, to be honest. Um, and obviously, a lot of that was very incentivized volume. Uh, I remember chatting to the Wintermute guys, and they showed me essentially the difference in volume after the epoch had ended, and it was pretty significant. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's a good tool for us. Uh, we also received like a, a grant from Serum recently, so we're looking to, to use that as well for, for rewards on the taker side. So I'm doing a bunch of the kind of rewards engineering side on that. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's a, some of the ways. Can I, can I throw like a similar question to you, which is maybe just like, 
Are there any kind of breakthroughs or like big demand sources that you're keeping your eyes on right now that you think will catalyze like the options and derivatives market on DeFi to go mainstream in the same way that like, you know, AMMs and decentralized exchanges kind of had their moment in the sun two years ago? Yeah, I think uh, there's a kind of shadow answer here, which fits with the theme of this this podcast, actually, which is um, collateralization. Uh, so Friction's next product line is is uh, the, the world of under-collateralized lending on fixed rate and fixed term. Uh, we think this is super useful because you can now use this as collateral or you can use other positions on Friction as collateral, which means you unlock the capital efficiency of a bunch of products the same way you would if you were accessing a prime off-chain. Uh, traditionally, the function of Prime has been very tough because it's very relationship heavy. And if we can bring that, if we can kind of remove the relationship part or quantify the relationship part and still build on kind of the existence of a bunch of individual products. So the option selling, the power perp selling basis um, and capital protection strategies, we can kind of offer everything in one place. Once we do have this kind of fixed term, fixed rate market, we're super excited for this because I think right now through uh, the deleveraging we've seen in the first six months of the year, um, the, the market for sophisticated lenders has changed a lot. I mean, look at bar rates today. They're basically double where they were before. I mean, in pre-3AC, you, you, you were basically only paying 35 to 5.5% to borrow uh, fixed rate, fixed term, uh, uncollateralized, which is pretty crazy because if you go off chain, like you may even see similar rates, uh, which was confusing to a lot of traditional players who are getting into the market. But we've seen that almost double, triple uh, today uh, as the premium for um, like default risk has gone up a lot and the way people are pricing these loans has gone up a lot. Um, but once you can bring in under collateralization as a, as like a Lego into a portfolio, I think um, it makes, it makes things a lot more interesting and it makes DeFi really competitive when it comes to yield. I think it, in products, like you can combine five different types of products. And then the end user that sits there is like anyone who touches a prime brokerage in the first place, because they, it could be anyone from a, a corporate treasury, a foundation, a DAO, a family office, asset manager. Uh, and we're starting to see these guys come in and say like, Hey, we want to access DeFi yield. Um, we need deep markets for these things, or we need like real sources of risk that's being taken in order to get something. So yeah, I think that's how uh, I view a big innovation coming into DeFi next is, is when we start getting under collateralized lending as a, a Lego into portfolios. Can, can you um, walk us through exact, just so uh, folks are absolutely clear about, cause that, uh, that connection that you just highlighted is, is super, super important. So like, Again, kind of just walk us through the relationship there. Like, let's say, let's just make stuff up here and say, uh, let's in in the next, let's say three or four years, there's a bunch of demand for uh, fixed rate, fixed term debt, right? So maybe it's Dow start issuing debt. Um, maybe it's, you know, what, whatever the source of, uh, let's say the market grows from very, very small today. There is no term limit debt for like over a year anyway. It's all like six months, even if it is fixed rate. So let's say it becomes like a $10 billion market or something like that. Walk us through how that leads to growth on friction. Yeah. So as you said, um, very aptly, most of the fixed term, fixed rate stuff right now is being done on a 30 to 90 day window. And that's that's not very long out. You can't really create a yield curve uh, in DeFi using that. So one thing is that those maturities have to start to extend. Um, but we're also seeing this blur between open term and fixed term. I think we see in certain market regimes, certain uh, like liquidity regimes that borrowers prefer open term loans. Um, but then when all the lenders suddenly want to pull back, which is what we saw when even uh, when Jimmy was posting about this, um, is a lot of lenders pull back and they as a market maker are uh, very good and they can stay solvent, but a lot of people can't, which flushes out the market and kind of creates these cycles. Uh, but to go from where we are today to then, I mean, we've basically originated like two to two and a half billion in 
uh, loans on chain today, uh, under collateralized, which is tiny. Um, I think we need a lot of people to come into this space and make lending very clear, like the risks of lending very clear. I think UX for under collateralized lending and DeFi particularly is, is really challenging today because you deal with all these like windows of lockup and these cooldown periods and these unlocks. So first thing is we've got, we've got to fix that and make that more obvious for retail users. And also traditionally, um, this under collateralized lending is permissioned on both the lender and borrower side, uh, which means that the borrowers are vetted to make sure that they can pass um, financial due diligence. So this puts them essentially creates them a risk score. Uh, and that risk score can be used to determine what their, um, their kind of net borrow rate should be and how that credit notice priced itself. But traditionally lenders have also been permissioned, which means that you have to be an institutional lender. So some of the groups we were talking about before, say DAOs, um, corporate treasuries, um, even centralized lenders to access this product. I think we have to become permissionless on the lend side. Um, and we have to approach a world in which like you can, you can price these things and you can price duration mismatch, which we shouldn't have at all. I think, and this is one point of DeFi is like, you can see duration is, is very clear when, when you enter this loan. You can see that there's someone managing that duration risk. I think the concept of having what we call conductors or uh, underwriters of these pools who come in and use our infrastructure to basically match lenders and borrowers and match the duration and concentration risk of the borrowers is, is going to be super important. And that role is something we'll see a couple of new entrants step into um, on the way to 10 billion. Can you, can you, I'd, I'd be curious to get um, your perspective here. I think we've uh, done a really good job of outlining, you know, some of the roadblocks for why this market isn't bigger today and like what needs to happen. I'd love to get your thoughts on what is possible in the space of DeFi derivatives that might not even be possible um, in its, its CFI sort of analog, right? Uh, Udav, you were kind of getting into this a little bit when you were kind of describing uh, power perps, right? Maybe as a structure that doesn't uh, exist, right, in, in, in the CFI world. But I'd love to get your kind of thoughts because I, I think structured products um, are huge. You know, that's something that kind of gets built on everything that we're talking about—the ability to borrow, lend at a fixed rate, um, uncollateralized lending. You kind of get very popular structured products on top of that. Uh, so I'd love to kind of get your guys' perspective of what some of those might look like, and specifically if we could lean into like what is possible uh, in this new design space uh, that maybe. Uh, isn't possible in within the world of C5. Yeah, I can kind of touch on that super quickly. So I think where DeFi currently works really well, given, uh, I guess, the performance of, of chains and what they cater to is it's a really fantastic settlement layer. And I think much better than CFI at the moment. Um, it, it's really good for that. You've, you've got the kind of transparency there. Uh, it, it's pretty fast and it, it works really well. Um, where it kind of struggles a bit more to keep up is on, say, high frequency trading. Obviously, if you've come from an HFT mm. background, you're used to like 400 nanosecond response times and people using FPGAs and all this kind of crazy stuff. This would obviously never be possible in a, a kind of blockchain landscape, uh, given network latency and consensus and all the other things that have gotten, uh, got to go into that. And I think that's kind of unrealistic to expect that DeFi will get to that stage where we're getting to sub millisecond um, confirmation and being able to trade um, in that kind of fashion. So I think that's why Vault specifically have done super well. Um, I think even though some of the auction stuff is a lot lower frequency uh, and a lot of it kind of happens off chain, even like Telegram auctions and that kind of stuff. Um, I think the fact that you have this uh, kind of unified settlement layer for everything works really well. Uh, and I think uh, it, it's just like a much better infrastructure than what we currently have on uh, centralized. Do you, do, you, do you think this, uh, basically the business model pioneered by high frequency traders, is that 
Like, is that a one-way linear direction forward? Do you think it has to necessarily be like that? Or, you know, because there are kind of two schools of thoughts on high-frequency traders, which is, and maybe the truth is somewhere in between, which is uh, one, maybe the most positive way you could look at it is they provide much more liquidity than has previously existed in markets. And like, all else being equal, more liquidity is definitely a good thing. Then there's also kind of another way of looking at it, which is these guys are basically just doing some sort of legal uh, version of front running, right? Or it's certain, maybe they're extracting more than they're actually adding in terms of value, right? So sometimes when you hear these arguments about like why it needs to be a central limit order book, because basically prioritization of high frequency, you need to subsidize or give cheaper pricing to high frequency traders for, for, for providing liquidity. I'd just be curious to see if you guys, does it have to be like that necessarily? It's a good question. I probably don't have the uh, best opinion for my co-founders would because they they all worked at HFT market making firms. Um, but it seems like that's so where everything is made. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I, I remember there were a lot of stories about how they would run underwater cables and run all these you know different uh, kind of uh, radio frequency towers essentially to to slice off nanoseconds from their their timings. And it seems like that was where a lot of these guys were winning was on the kind of tech side by just optimizing that kind of stuff and less on like directional trading and strategic stuff. Um, I mean, we are seeing similar stuff starting to pan out in DeFi as well, right? MEV is becoming this massive business. Uh, it's obviously massive in uh, Ethereum, given the kind of mempool there. We're seeing it also on Solana. It's starting to become uh, a big thing. You know, people starting to do more sandwich stuff. We're, we're getting more funky stuff happening with 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 order books and, and a bunch of other things there. Um, so I, I think... Similar things will play out in both chains and MEV seems to also drive a huge amount of the volume on, I think, derivatives DEXs at the moment, uh, especially from what I've noticed on Solana, especially probably more on like the, the arbitrage side, I would say though. Yeah, I think, I guess I'll take the view that HFT um, is only exists because there is some efficient inefficiency in the market and that inefficiency can exist on um, a, a microstructure level in the order book. It can exist on an infrastructure level between exchanges and, and then it can exist in other worlds, like regulatory worlds too. Um, so I think HFT has existed and continues to do well because it just finds these natural inefficiencies. And as you said, it provides liquidity when other people don't. Um, yeah, most of our team comes from this, this world, uh, commodities, equities, um, uh, treasuries. And I think we, we've seen that without these type of actors in the system, it becomes really tough. I mean, the whole point of AMMs was to replace this, right? So at some point, like we understand that there was a need to have liquidity um, continuously. And the previously uh, owner of that function was an HFT firm. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's quite interesting that um, DeFi has taken a view that HFT was not as important or is, isn't as important. I think it's going to change as we see traditional players come into the market. But to your initial question of like, where do you think, um, where do you think, the innovation in DeFi comes from. I mean, Power Purpose is an interesting one. Academically, very cool product. Um, fundamentally, implementing it has, has been pretty challenging. But I think we don't need continuous liquidity for uh, DeFi to scale necessarily, right? Like Friction has, as a platform, has traded two two point eight billion in volume uh, across options and perps uh, without a single continuous or without really any um, continuous liquidity provisioning, right? We, we use an RFQ model, which people are used to. They can come in, they can participate in an on-chain auction. And then they can kind of go about their, their day. And even HFT firms are some of the largest participants in um, the treasuries auctions, let's say, because they know that they're pricing these things and they can deal with that flow once the auction finishes. Uh, I think we'll continue to see that, that happen in DeFi as these guys come in and participate more. Yeah, I would love to. Um, maybe we can almost, you know, uh, start to gently wind down here, I guess, with your thoughts of, um, you know, the future of just how big this market can get, right? Like to use a very... Uh, 
middle of the bell curve type analogy, right? Like if you look at the TradFi analog, right, of let's say the market size for derivatives versus spot, right, it's orders of magnitude larger, right? So just in US equities this year, options volume surpassed uh, spot volume. But then if you add in like futures and swaps and all sorts of other types of derivatives, I mean, it's like not just one order of magnitude, but I'm pretty sure several orders of magnitude uh, larger. So I'd love to get your thoughts just on on how like big you see this market getting for crypto um because i think thus far right like i think we we do we do have derivatives volumes like futures that are traded on centralized exchanges like binance right like we've seen futures flip spot uh but so far again it's just been and i know we've talked specifically about what some of the road the roadblocks are but i'd love to get your your thoughts let's say in like the next three to five years, right? Like, let's say we do start to solve some of those challenges. Just how big can this market get and how big can it get relative to maybe to spot specifically? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I guess our thesis is that it's going to go uh, a similar direction. I think there are just so many advantages to derivatives, especially on the capital efficiency side of things. I think you're already seeing that on on CeFi. Perps have become the dominant product. Um, a bunch of my, I guess, normie friends who who get into crypto, the first thing they trade is actually like, the uh, kind of perp for Bitcoin rather than Bitcoin itself, um, which is a pretty interesting observation. I think in pretty stark contrast to to more like the 2017 days when it was a lot more spot trading. Um, and then I think I think since like Bitmex obviously pioneered uh, the kind of perp stuff, and FTX is really focused on a lot of the derivatives trading as their kind of uh, primary focus. I, I think that has been uh, pretty massive, and we've seen like this. Massive over leveraging uh, events that that's all coming through kind of perps and a bunch of these other um, kind of highly levered products. I think that's going to keep growing uh, given the kind of demand there and how how much people love to to try them. I think that will eventually flow into into DeFi, um, especially when we start to kind of unlock other stuff like uh, under collateralized lending, like Udav kind of mentioned. I think that will be pretty important. And I think once obviously chains start to to improve and we can start building more complex systems that will kind of flow in there as well. Um, so we think the the market's definitely pretty massive. Uh, I forget what the the real number is in traditional finance. Uh, I don't think people even have a number for the market size, but it's it's probably in the tens of, if not hundreds of trillions of dollars uh, is the kind of global derivatives market. Um, whether kind of crypto grows to that, um, that remains to be seen, but I think there's like massive opportunity there. And I think there is definitely uh, kind of orders of magnitude growth. I think crypto still has, as a whole, orders of magnitude growth to go. Uh, and, and then I think the, the derivatives vertical within that kind of slice of the pie that we're in, uh, I think has a lot more room to grow as well. Good up. Any closing thoughts? I think the flagship number for US equities is uh, crypto or options trade 35x spot. Um, I mean, we have to remember that traditional equities launched in like the late 70s. So we've we've had about uh, 50 years uh, to get to that that growth level or to that multiple. I think that's something that crypto or DeFi specifically can do in in less than 10 years. Um, and I'm pretty optimistic as as we kind of see um, the big layer of equity distribution, equity options distribution comes from structured products. The same way I think we'll see that in in the DeFi world. But we're going to see these products built a lot differently on different rails and on rails in which people can understand all the risks they're taking behind them. So I think the biggest thing is like. We didn't chat, chat too much about this is, is as people find new ways of getting yield in DeFi that really come from just like rich properties of an asset, whether it's the option or whether it's the perp, um, we'll see these things scale up a lot more. I mean, we're the largest um, provider of basis strategies on Solana, right? And, and this is a OI, mar OI in this market is like 15 million, uh, which is pretty crazy, right? And I think uh, it's something that we need to see um, grow as, as new liquidity providers come in and 
uh, we, we kind of work as Zeta, Friction, Mango, all these, these protocols to kind of scale how people can access DeFi strategies. Actually, I got one more question for you here because the the top thing in crypto, and this is a this is a difficult question to answer, right? But like, it's just trying to assess like product market fit. Tristan, you were kind of outlining like some of the uses for options markets in general, and I think we can all uh, you know kind of see maybe like yeah, I mean, options are used to like manage uh, risk, right? But a, a lot of the times also used to speculate, and I think especially in crypto, if you don't allow for like the speculation use case, you're really going to miss uh, quite a bit of why things initially get adopted. Um, so I guess like if you had to guess at like, let's say these things, um, you know, we, we get our, our market size by like $10 billion or something in uncollateralized lending, and we get to do it at, uh, at fixed rates of more than just uh, 30 to 90 days in advance. Um, I, I would love to, I mean, the growth of a decentralized derivatives market, I think is integral to that future happening. So I'd love to get your kind of sense of what do you think the initial, what is initial kind of product market fit on that side looks like if you had to kind of speculate, like who is the the user ultimately? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, perps definitely have already found product market fit, which is why given that we're trying to build out a fully fledged uh, derivatives exchange, we're going to be launching that within the next couple of weeks. Um, we think it's just like a great mm-hmm. product as kind of like the the gateway drug, I guess, for, for retail to get in. You know, that's the, the easy thing. It's like, you know, perp goes up or down and you kind of know very easily if you're making money or not. Whereas with options, sometimes people go like long the call and then they kind of lose on the kind of uh, time value of the option. Then they're like, hey, I got the direction right. Why did I lose money? Um, and so stuff like that is still kind of confusing. And I think it will take people time to get their heads around it. I think stuff like the vaults have been great um, because it kind of takes a bit of the uh, mental effort off in, in terms of picking the strategy, picking the strikes, doing all the kind of uh, complex stuff there. Uh, and then I think what I'm really excited for as well is we're really trying to be, I guess, the infrastructure layer for a lot of this derivative stuff. We think like the infrastructure at the moment is still pretty poor and still pretty fragmented. And I think where DeFi really thrives, right, is uh, the composability aspect. And it's basically uh, software as a service. Uh, anyone can kind of plug in uh, and call out kind of on-chain APIs and use it in the background. Um, and so we're really excited for use cases like impermanent loss hedging, for example, is something that's definitely uh, eventually going to be possible either through options or through power perps. I think these things have been explored. Um, other things that we're working on that I, I find really exciting are uh, new ways to do liquidity mining. So we're actually pioneering this uh, with a bunch of uh, protocols at the moment on Solana. So instead of doing the typical pull to thing, and giving away, I guess, uh, native token uh, when you're trying to distribute it, it gets insta-dumped essentially, as you're probably familiar with with most airdrops and token launchers. So instead, they're actually uh, putting their tokens through our platform, ZetaFlex, which basically mints uh, a call option uh, for their native token, and then they distribute, say, two-week locked-up uh, call options on their tokens. So it gives their users uh, full upside, uh, but kind of reduces a bunch of the selling pressure. And so we think that's a, a great way to kind of get this uh, secondary use cases of, of derivatives that aren't, you know, flat out uh, buying the options themselves on market. I guess I'll, I'll take the stab of what I was, uh, a vein of what I was going on earlier, which uh, the next set of distribution for DeFi has to come from um, the institutional category. There's been this amazing meme in crypto where institutions are coming, institutions are coming, and, and then we see cycles, um, OI goes up, leverage goes up. They come and then OI goes down, leverage goes down, uh, they get rinsed, right? So uh, for us, a big focus, I mean, we, we just launched an entire institutional team that's focused on this and we, we're breaking it down into different segments of, of the market who we see are very crypto curious, but aren't really able to take that risk. 
So a lot of the work that, that has to be done really is like explain to people how DeFi rails work. Um, and the type of people we're talking to here are anyone who would normally be a client of a prime brokerage, right? So everyone from a miner to a hedge fund to a family office or anyone who wants to access lending rates, right? Crypto lending is a world that's so siloed. Like really the easiest way to access crypto lending right now is go to FTX and make an account and, and use their margining system and lend into their margining system essentially, right? But obviously that doesn't have fixed rate or fixed term and there's an entire like missing level of composability that's possible on top of that with interest rate swaps and equivalent um, fixed versus variable rate products that we see will, will scale a bunch. So yeah, I think as we, as we find these categories and we, as we define them more, um, we'll see how, uh, how, how prime businesses can kind of grow. And I think under collateralized products will be a, a, a fundamental underpinning of this. All right, guys. Thanks. You've been super generous with your time. You guys are both uh, building super interesting things. So, um, you know, I'm sure this will be the first in, in many interviews that we do, but thanks for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate fun. it, guys. This is great. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Take care, guys. Thanks, guys. All right, buddy. Uh, that, was a, that was a good episode. I will say I uh, let you pick up the bulk of that one. I kind of backed out. Uh, I mean, what I else was, is new, brother? I was, obviously, I understood every <laughs> single thing that they just said. So I wanted to make sure that you understood things. So I let you ask the questions there. That was obviously my strategy. Here, I mean, you know what? I love that episode. It's, you're, it's very clear that you're talking to two guys who have identified an extremely large market opportunity that basically everyone agrees is a big market opportunity, but there are enormous technical challenges, right? As to why that hasn't happened yet. So two, you know, gigabrain guys, but I just have an enormous respect for for what they're doing. And frankly, both of yeah. the, both of them have found some initial success. Um, yeah. You know, it was funny before, before we started recording, we we're talking about Mike Green, right? Udav spoke at Das and was talking to Mike Green and they were kind of going back and forth. And Udav was like, yeah, well, Mike Green is the guy who in like, you know, February of 2018 was going long the VIX when everyone was saying you should short the VIX and short volatility. It's like, these are you don't build what they're building unless you love market structure and you love markets, right? The ability to just be like, oh, in this month, this date, this time, this was happening. I know that actually was a big thing that everyone was shorting, shorting vol in early 2018. That was actually a big moment. But like, yeah, these guys just love markets. They live and breathe it. And I think they had some pretty interesting takes that relate to the season. So what do yeah. you think? What do you think of uh, Udo's take kind of tying everything back? I actually have to give a shout out to Mike Green, who I also was one of the people that <laughs> we just validated this this season's thesis with. Um, he is he is. I really like him as a person. He's he is by far my favorite skeptic of crypto overall because I, <laughs> I I find I find his skepticism highly useful actually as opposed to some of the other skepticism. Um, before we get into, I think Udav made a very uh, you know about thirty minutes into that interview, he made a very enlightening. He made the connection right without us even leading him to it, which was this connection in between fixed rate borrow lend under collateralized lending and the market for options, which I thought was really interesting. I, I actually wish that if I could go back and do that interview again, I would have spent a little bit more time on the central limit order book versus AMM and building on an app chain versus building on a generalized blockchain. I thought it was really interesting to hear that Tristan is already speaking with the folks from Say and potentially launching um, on Say as well. I don't know if he just broke that as news or if that was public. <laughs> but uh, I thought that was I thought that was very interesting, very cool. Um, and you I know why that was interesting, Mike, is because I just got off an interview. So we we just dropped an interview with Starkware, or we just recorded it. Um, I, it's, by the time this is out, that episode is probably out on Empire with Santiago, and we recorded it with them. And the Starkware, the two Starkware founders, Eli and Yuri, they're basically making the argument that Uniswap has only taken off because there's computational 
uh, limitations, essentially. But once you unlock the computational like scale limitations for things like Uniswap, don't make any the, the AMM model doesn't make any sense anymore. And all of crypto moves just into a centralized uh, into 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 central limit order books. Um, and he's like, either Uniswap pivots or someone else will just come and run Uniswap show. And then these guys brought up, I forgot, forgot who said it, that Uniswap V3, it really looks kind of more like a central limit order book. So that like I'm putting these pieces together in my mind. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy named Doug Colkit who's building something called CrocSwap that I think oh, has, yeah. that I think He's has great. really good takes on this, which is, you know, I forget. He tweeted something out which I really they resonated with me the other day, which was, you know, something to the effect of maybe I, it's not a totally a total dichotomy in between AMMs and central limit order books, and maybe we get something new in crypto, but it might feel a little bit more AMM like than central limit order booky, um, and. I think there is the the need to provide continuous liquidity. I also think, I mean, Uniswap V3 across, you know, any different price, that's not that's not optimal from a market maker standpoint. So they already have concentrated liquidity, which, I mean, I forget if it was Udav or Tristan that said this, but that actually, that has order book-like characteristics to it. So it, we probably, it, I don't think it's like one model totally ends up winning uh, or the other. It's probably uh, maybe a little bit more of a gray area, but we, we probably also should, I, the question that I wish that I had asked when we were talking about just Cosmos in general is when you almost like vertical vertical integration of the app chain model and being able to extract value from MEV because that actually if we're talking about Uniswap that's a big opportunity that they have they're still being uh, you know on Ethereum right all of the MEV transactions that flow through that chain that does that accrues to ETH validators not any of the you know as opposed to when DYDX has its own chain that's going to flow to validators of the DYDX chain it's a whole other way to monetize so yeah I, I kind of i wish that we had i wish that we had gotten into that but um but i mean udov i mean he really kind of summed everything up in the end when he connected this idea of everything that we're talking about this whole season which is the the unlock that i think we're waiting for right the the way that i would rephrase almost what he said is they in a way also are waiting around for a more traditional model right where you have uncollateralized lending and fixed rate lending because if you have a robust market for both of those things, then their market, which is structured products, right, and options really takes off, right? So these are both interconnected markets. And I think once we get, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg thing, you kind of need them to, to both happen at the same time. But uh, he, he really did validate our, our thesis about these things being tied together. And he also sees that yeah. as a big driver for, for friction. Again, I'm a, I, and we knew that this was going to be a challenge heading to the season. It's just calling when this stuff happens and uh yeah this one feels like one that like you know i will say it's this one feels like one that it could take a while i tristan tristan did say you know that they've passed darabit on the options volume for the long tail of assets super impressive i didn't know that uh reminds me a lot of uniswap passing coinbase uh for for the volume of long tail assets right but that you still go to something like coinbase to just buy spot on bitcoin or eth you still go to darabit for the uh for bitcoin and eth but you go to something like Zeta for the long tail of assets. But I still do think it's a very long time before uh, something like this really takes off. Like re re compared to something like uh, the episode with Teddy and Sid, like uncollateralized or undercollateralized lending, like that feels like something that's coming sooner than like a huge booming uh, decentralized derivatives I mean, market. I think the, the very last comment from Udav actually kind of cemented this in my head, which is something that you and I've talked about various times, but you know, we even noticed this. Uh, DeFi has always been complicated, but 
even you know from the beginning of DeFi summer to right around where we ended, remember where there's kind of like DeFi 2.0 and there were all these new sorts of DeFi protocols. I mean, they all got very esoteric and very complicated to the point where, at least for me, I, you know, I trying to use some of these things. I was like, these are not re- these are, retail is not the end user. <laughs> like it just can't be. Remember you, you remember you remember yeah. in Arizona and you were aping into those things. I was like, oh god, this. I was is like, I know well. I'm gonna, I know I'm getting fleeced here. I know I'm gonna lose money. I'm not sure how. I was right because I did, but uh, I, I just think I just think they're they're wildly complicated. And I think what I've said right at the end of the interview yeah. is like this: this has to be an institutional market eventually. And the big yeah. the big roadblock for institutions getting involved is is just regulation. I think so. Yeah. You know, one thing that this this season has actually said this was not the point of the season at all. But I have become I've gotten pretty red pilled on permission DeFi, frankly as a as a as a market size i think it's coming kyc5 i mean that's a good segue into our episode next week with ben foreman yeah. right who's a huge permissioned permissioned DeFi bull and by the way like the episode next week if you guys aren't subscribed to the show already you guys should subscribe the episode next week with ben is so 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 good it really ties like everything that we're talking about fixed rate lend and borrow under collateralized loans DeFi options permission DeFi, like it ties all that stuff yeah. together so founder verify next week is very very good and we actually hinted at something as well that was going to be a source of demand right because maybe if you just listened to this episode you could have fallen to this idea that okay there are retail and institutional traders but especially when we start to talk about debt uncollateralized lending we also need to think about who is the borrower ultimately going to be? So when we were talking about who's the customer here, we were kind of talking about it from the perspective of who the trader is. But keep in mind, one of the ultimate sources for why options market exists is hedging risk, especially when it comes to debt. So then you also need borrowers on the other side of that. And a, a cool maybe, you know, in, in the future, uh, like DAOs being issuers of debt, that's something that we get into uh, with the yeah. episode as well. Yeah. But yeah, I thought overall, you know, great episode. I think validated the vast majority of what we were talking about. But again, just the 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 thing to watch is when all this stuff happens. Although, again, I will say, just having been been through the last bear market, I mean, very few people were predicting, you know, the imminent rise of DEXs in general. So all it takes is one catalyst that's an unknown unknown, right? And it's always very difficult to just get on a podcast and say, well, it's unknown unknown, and you have to account for that. So maybe it'll be something. But um yeah, who knows? It, this could all surprise us, and it could come much, much quicker than we all think. Because the yeah. rise of they they said it right. I think watching the rise of Uniswap's volumes compared to remember when it flipped Coinbase? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember crazy. the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Anyways, good app. Excited for Ben next week. Um, I uh, will call out. We've started to get some messages. Uh, we're starting to think about what next season looks like. I've started to get some messages about sponsoring next season. Uh, we're going to keep that open for the next couple of weeks. So if you guys want to sponsor if you are working at a company that wants to sponsor next season uh you can just dm me on twitter and we can chat about it so anyways thanks for listening guys hit the subscribe button we'll see you next week